Welcome to the next episode of Transformative Teaching, a FACET IU podcast. This is your host, Michael Maroney. I'm the director of FACET, and I have the privilege of having our guest, Harold Olivey, who is an assistant clinical professor of biology at IU Northwest and a member of the FACET class of 2022. And I know you do a ton of service because I've seen you at the Indiana <laughs> University faculty council meetings. And, uh, so you're a really busy guy. Yeah, my my calendar is very full. That's yeah, yeah. And, sure. and also a so- campus associate director there, and right. Yeah, so I know that you're doing you're doing a lot with Facet and a lot on your campus and a lot with the university and and uh, of course everyone is pre- appreciates that because that's what keeps us moving forward. Um, Glad to do it. Yeah. So uh, what what we're doing in these in these episodes, Harold, is we're just uh, we're having a conversation so that our our facet members and and really anybody who wants to listen can can get to know um, about you as an instructor and kind of some of the transformative things you do uh, in, in your teaching and um, kind of why why it excites you and uh, and and looking forward to hearing some of some of your stories. Um, I, I'm really. Curious, even with our the first question we have that that we've asked a lot of people is, what's a personal favorite example of reflective practice in your teaching? You know, one of the things I've had to struggle with as an educator is the fact that not everybody is me, um, which you know seems like it should be obvious, but it's just not, um, and so. One of one of the many aspects of my personality, which you'll know within five minutes of meeting me, is I'm very outgoing. I'm very extroverted. I like talking. I like answering questions. And, you know, what I have found, and I know this is going to shock your listeners, not all students are like that. Really? Right? Yeah, I know. It's it's a, That's why I gave you the warning to sit down. Yeah. Um, but one thing I've had to do is is learn that it's not helpful to assume that everybody wants to answer questions or even to try to force everyone to answer questions. So one of the things I've really reflected on a lot is how can I better judge that situation, right? You know, how can I better tell if students want to want to participate and how can I provide ways that may feel a little safer or more comfortable for students to be able to participate? Um, so I've turned a lot to response systems, like using, for instance, Top Hat. Yeah. And, um, you know, actually, even just recently, I, I, I'm I using Top Hat, and I'm just having students check in. At the beginning of every lecture, I just put up a little sort of a spectrum of smiley face to, to crying face <laughs> gotcha. and be like, where are you at today, right? Yeah. Just sort of see how students are feeling. Um, and I, and I, I use a lot of anonymous questions on Top Hat. So students, I tell them, not even I am going to know who answered this, right? If you got it wrong, you got it right. That's, that's, you're the only one who's going to know. And I found that's a good way to help me gauge where students are. So I'm curious, can you tell me a little bit about the kinds of classes you teach? Are they big classes? Are they online classes? What what are they like? Well, the answer to that is yes. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, most of my teaching is face to face. I use I usually teach one class online in the summer, and it's a it's a very heavily writing based class and discussion. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that one. 
Um, but during the uh, the spring and fall semesters, I, I teach both large classes. I teach our human anatomy and physiology series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm one of the two instructors who does that at IU Northwest. And um, depending on the semester, I can have anywhere from, you know, in fall semesters, it's, it's, it's smaller. It's usually, you know, 30 to 40 students. But in spring, I can have well over 200 students between a couple okay. of sections of that class. Um, and then I teach majors courses from second semester general, which again is, a you know, for, for us is a big class. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's around 50 or so each, each okay. spring. And, uh, you know, but this semester I'm teaching a five, a five person upper level majors class. Yeah. Um, so I really teach across the spectrum in terms of size and topics and, and modalities. Well, I'm, I'm assuming this students being hesitant to response is much more of an issue in the big classes than it is. Oh, no. No, <laughs> you'd think that, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, no, that's it, what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um the easier thing is that with the smaller classes, it's it's easier to learn their names. I mean, I I, I sure. wish I could learn all all the names of all my two hundred students yeah. in my big classes. It's it's just beyond my meager capacities. But I do know the students in those classes because a lot of them, it's the second, third, or even fourth class I've taught them. You know, okay. because we're a smaller school, you know, we, I, I, I will teach biology majors again, a minimum of two or three times and, mm-hmm. you know, during their tenure at the university. So I know them a little better and I, and I, I can gauge a little bit better, you know, they're, how yeah. they're going to respond and, and where they're feeling. But um, yeah, it still can be an issue. It still can be an issue. And so I've, I've even tried some things like team-based learning. Mm-hmm. in those in those smaller classes uh so that you can answer as a group rather than mm-hmm. having to put yourself out there and i think that makes students a little more comfortable okay okay uh, so that's that's kind of interesting so i i teach a communication class in the kelly school of business uh down here at iu bloomington and my my take on this is this is a communication class and you're going to communicate so i do a <laughs> lot of cold calling and uh and my students seem to be okay with it. So this is an interesting thing of reflecting on kind of who your students are and, and the kind of adaptations you you need to make uh, for particular for particular types of students. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so w- when did you realize this about your students? Was it like early on, like, and, and you pivoted fast, or was this something where you kind of developed your technique? I really had to develop this technique. This is uh, this was not something where I pivoted quickly. I I had the mindset you did. You know, this is a you know for my majors. I'm like you know you're going to go on. So many of our majors coming wanting to go to professional school. You know, oh, medical okay. school, dental school, etc. Mm-hmm. And I would you know my thinking was you're going to have to do this one day. You're going to be on rounds as a med student and the attending is going to call on you and you're going to have to talk about the patient's condition and talk about their history and talk about the treatment and how it's going. And there is no ducking it, right? You have to do that. So you may as well get prepared for that now. Um, But what I found was that was more alienating to students. Okay. And so I didn't want them, I didn't want them to look at me as a barrier. Yeah. And I, and I felt sometimes that that, putting that pressure on them was having just that effect. Yeah. Um, and so I'd, I'd rather help them ease into it. Right. I, I sort of getting away from, you know, pushing you in the pool and, you know, you'll figure out how to swim. Right. Um, but maybe providing you some water wings, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, maybe 
letting you run through the sprinkler until you feel comfortable right, jumping right, in the pool, right? right? right. So. Yeah, so you're kind of backing off. It, it might have felt intimidating to them or something like that. Yeah. Kind of like easing them into it, yeah. And I'm not a small person, physically or just in a space, right? You got a big I, you personality. Know, and <laughs> Right. And so I have to remember that that can be intimidating to yeah, some people, yeah. even though I'd never intend to be. Yeah, well... And you're not going to just put yourself in a little avatar on the screen in front of them, right? And talk to them from the room behind them like the wizard. <laughs> no, but I have thought about cloning myself so I could be doing work while I'm teaching. But you gotcha, gotcha. maybe the avatar would work too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so um, what, when did you realize that you love teaching? How did, how, did you, how did you realize that? You know, it's a weird story. I was a graduate student at Vanderbilt and I was maybe in my second year in the program. So I didn't feel like I knew very much, you know, and this postdoctoral researcher came to our lab and she had a wonderful background in like hardcore, like, you know, wet lab anatomy and, you know, new physiology up one way and down the other, but she knew next to nothing about molecular biological techniques, like working with DNA and plasmids and things like that. And that was the work she wanted to learn how to do. That's one reason she came to our lab. And the little bit of research I had done at that point, I had a pretty rich background in that. And so I remember just sitting with her, we would just go into the break room where there was a whiteboard mm -hmm. and we would just start talking about stuff. And I draw pictures on the board and she was really understanding it. And she, years later at a meeting, at this point, I think I had become a postdoc. And she said, you know, you are the one who taught me molecular biology. Um, she said, you know, I still remember so much from what you taught me and I've always been so grateful and it's been such a big help in my career. And I never had really thought about teaching. Like, I mean, I trained as a scientist. I figured I would be doing yeah. science. Um, but I, you know, it was, it was, and I, and I realized that I, I, throughout my graduate career and as a postdoctoral researcher, that's a lot of what I was doing was teaching. You know, you teach the younger graduate students, you teach the undergraduates who come into the lab to work, you teach them about the scientific method, you teach them about the techniques. Um, and, and people always told me, you know, you'd be really good at this. You know, you're really good at teaching people. So, yeah, sort of a realization I came to during my during my career you know training as a scientist was it were there any uh, any instructors that you had where you just like really grooved with the way they did things and that was kind of like super motivating to you or or it, ironically it was actually my phd supervisor and not not in the lab um not the way he taught in the lab but the way he taught in the classroom yeah he was he was a fairly active teacher uh, which is saying a lot for, you know, our, our program, because, you know, most faculty in that program didn't want anything to do with teaching, right? Because it took them out of their labs. Um, but I really appreciated the way he taught not just graduate students in his official capacity, but also he was very active for the American Heart Association. Mm -hmm. And they would bring groups because we were funded partially. Our, we did work in, in, in the heart and blood vessels. So we had some funding from American Heart Association. And they would bring groups of donors through our laboratory, you know, sort of say, hey, hey, here's where your money is being is being spent. Yeah. And uh, my my PhD supervisor was just really good at 
being able to discuss this very complicated work we were doing studying heart development and heart valve development and sort of distilling it down for these people who were, you know, bankers, um, you know, because we were in Nashville, That's we had some folks who were involved in country music. I mean, you know, the, you know, yeah. it was a wide variety of people with a very, you know, as wide a variety That's of backgrounds. It's kind of interesting to be working in a lab as a, as a postdoc or a doctoral student, and you've got bankers walking through the lab. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, That's kind of a strange day, time. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it seems strange at first, but after I you know after a while, it just oh, we got a group coming through. We just had it, huh. had it down, you know. We knew what we needed to do. Okay, okay. And so the, he could like turn this really complex material into something that that the layperson could could easily understand. Exactly. He yeah, really had a cool. knack for it. Cool. It sounds like you like to draw pictures too. Oh. I don't like to draw pictures. I will draw pictures if required. Yeah, as uh, I'm, I have, I have pretty much zero drawing ability. Uh -huh. um, so I'm, I much prefer to take somebody else's picture and walk, walk my students through it. And use a pointer. <laughs> oh yeah, the laser pointer and I are good friends. Okay, got you, got you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. That's fun. Um, I really never use a laser pointer in my classes because what would I point to? The words that we're typing? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, so that's great. So was this this um, this advisor? Was he? Would you consider him like one of your? Uh, if you thought of your Hall of Fame uh, in, in your in your teaching career, is this is this somebody who's in that Hall of Fame? Uh, if he's not, is there somebody else who would be? I would definitely put him in that pantheon. I I would. Um, I I think another one who was really influential was my my food microbiology uh, professor. Uh, that was an, an undergraduate class. My undergraduate okay. degree was in microbiology, and uh, she just made everything fascinating. Mm. And to this day, if I walk into a new restaurant, I go to the men's room, whether I need to or not. And make sure the hot water is running in the sink. Okay. If it isn't, I'm sticking to cocktails. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because learning about foodborne illness and about you know how how the food the safeguards put in place to keep the food supply from getting contaminated with microbial com contaminants, it was just amazing. It, it was a class that I took because I you know I had to have a certain number of micro classes to get a yeah. micro degree. I was like, well, this one fits on my schedule, but I was so glad I took it. It wound up being, again, one of the most fascinating classes I took, and it was largely because of how the energy and the passion she brought yeah. to the classroom. Yeah. So did you actually know when you went to college that you were going to be a biologist and, or something I knew in I, that area? I knew I wanted to be a biologist. Okay. I Because the era I was I was you know, I was in, I started, I graduated high school in 1991. So I'm giving my age away there. Um, but that era, genetic that, was your choice. that was your choice. I, it's okay. I, I it's I okay. <laughs> if anybody asks, I'm 29. But anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> and as I say, I look like hell for 29. But <laughs> in those days, one of the buzzwords was genetic engineering. And that's yeah. what I had sort of envisioned myself doing, although I didn't really understand what it was at the time. Um, but I, but I knew I wanted to do something biology related, and I, I got the opportunity to do research with my, actually my academic advisor. Uh, he was a fairly new assistant professor at the time and was looking for warm bodies. 
um, to come into the lab. And so uh, he sort of got me hooked on doing research. Okay. And that's when I decided I wanted to go to graduate school. And uh, there I did pivot. Boy, I, I, I was doing this great virus research with him and working with plant viruses. And I thought this would be cool. I'd love to work on viruses that, you know, affect animals or maybe even people. And then did something completely different when I got to grad school because I realized that I had passions for other things as well. Hmm. That's that's interesting. I, I I'm thinking about my own undergraduate experience where I started as a physics and English major, and ultimately okay. ultimately ended up going down the the, the English um, lane. Um, but even so, when I was in school, I had no idea that like this was going to be what I did, like teach writing and teach <laughs> argumentation, you know, for for many decades. You know? Right. <laughs> I had no ambition to teach as an undergraduate. I even and even early in grad school, I I think like many, uh, many graduate students, especially I don't know if this is particularly true in the, the biomedical sciences or what, but I thought I was going to have exactly the career my PhD supervisor did. Yeah. You know, I figured I would get my PhD, I'd go do postdoctoral fellowship, and then I would get a faculty position, set up a, a research lab, and research will be, you know, most, if not all of my, you know, at places like where I was a postdoc and a grad student, teaching was considered part of service, right? Okay. Um, so uh, that's what I figured it would be. I figured it would be a very minor part of what I did. And but instead, you'd be looking at germs all day. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I, I, I started realizing that as, even though I enjoyed research, it was not what I had passion for. Hmm. And uh, my postdoctoral advisor was kind enough to let me take an adjunct position while I was still in his lab. Um, Cause it was a, it was an early morning class. I could go teach it and then come and, you know, get my 12 hours in, in the lab. Um, and just, you know, it, it, it was a good fit. It was a good fit. So have you, you know, we've been talking about kind of your career and how you got interested in teaching. And I'm, I'm curious. Um, so when you're teaching the classes you're teaching and you have so many students, you must have those students that, that are, are, are challenging. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, there, there's, there's students who are challenging because it's, it's hard to get them to live up to their potential. And there are students who are challenging because they are very much living up to their potential and think, and they're, they think they're about two or three steps ahead of where they actually are. Okay. Um, and it's, it, it is, it is a challenge. Um, you know, I, I, as I said earlier, I, I never want my students to see me as a barrier. I want them to see me as their advocate and I want them to see me as their champion. And so it's sometimes hard to, to navigate that fine line between encouraging a student to live up to her potential versus pushing a student so that you alienate them and make them feel badly, mm -hmm. right? Um, or feel bad about, you know, the fact that they haven't lived up to that. Um and so I, I, I try to make sure that anytime I, I have, a, you know, I have to have a chat with, with a student like that, because, you know, they, they haven't lived up the expectations of a course or of an assignment. I try to, you know, remind them, you know, you've done some good. It's, it's just, you're not quite to where you need to be. I know you can get there. Let's think about ways that maybe you can do that. So trying to provide some sort of advice rather than just saying, you did this wrong, go back and redo it. But instead, this isn't where it needs to be. What can we do to get it where it needs to be, right? 
So you're doing lots um, of one-on-one conversations um, yeah. with, with, with these students. And so is your, is your office the one where people are lined up waiting to talk to you? You know, it's funny. It's not, um, okay. which is something that I've always regretted. Um, I, I have, I have, over the years tried incentives to try to get students to come to office hours and and after a while i just gave up it just doesn't really work um but what i love is when students do come to office hours yeah and and they in the middle they get that you know the glow in the eye that oh yeah now it's finally making sense and i've actually said to students i said will you please go tell your classmates that this happened because i need this advertising yeah right right right. (laughs) (laughs) exactly I need others to know that this is a good beneficial experience. Yeah, I mean, I I hear faculty trying to call office hours, all all different things these days to see if that'll motivate students. But ultimately, it comes down to comes down to like almost taking them by the hand, come to my office, let's talk, yeah. and then let's have a word of mouth advertising campaign. Yeah, and I've done that. I have I've said to my I've said to some students like, why don't you? I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll just say, what are, you, what are you doing right now? Do you have another class? Well, I was just going to go home. I said, well, do you have 15 minutes? Why don't you come to my office, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the other thing that I think, because this, this is a problem on our campus. I mean, in talking to colleagues, a lot of us wish students would come to office hours more. Very, very few of us, if any, have lines outside our doors. And I think part of it is that we, you know, we're the only IU campus without any residential oh. um, housing. And so we're in being an entire commuter campus students see campus as somewhere you go, you, you attend class and you go home. It's like, like being in high school, right? Yeah. It's like, you're you're putting, you're fitting it in your schedule. Right. (laughs) Pretty much. Right. And of course, 80% of our students work and Mm -hmm. more than half of them work more than 20 hours a week. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I think I'm just competing with the other stuff going on in their lives uh, more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes that makes sense and and that make would make sense it'd be hard to get them into the office i i office mm-hmm. i i've had a, a colleague down here who uh and we're on a residential campus and would have some had some issues with office hours and one of her one of the experiments she went with this this year was to actually have groups of students come in and they just did kind of like a group chat and then she just participated and it, it was more uh, rapport building than it was focused on content. And somehow or another, this like ballooned out in the whole class. And she started getting a lot more students coming in just to talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, it, I think that's great. And, I, yeah. and I've had that happen. You know, some of the best office hours meetings I've had with students have, again, there's been a little bit of content, but now I've had lots of students just be like, you know, what's it like in grad school? Yeah. You know, yeah. what should, what should I be, you know, what should question. I be doing to get ready for it? Or what's yeah. it going to be like once I get there? You know, I mean, I'm these happy are to... success type questions. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, the class, success goes beyond our specific class, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I think understanding that student success is not just graduation rates and, you know, lowering, getting your as low as possible DFW rate and as high as possible graduation rate. Those things are great. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, if I have a student who, comes and takes their, you know, takes their prereqs with me to go to dental school and they don't get an IU, IU Northwest biology degree, but they get dental school. That's success. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think it's important we remember that. Yeah. I mean, it's really defined by their, their vision of themselves and, and, and right. they want to go with their lives. Yeah. So um, 
have you ever had a semester where things just weren't going that well and kind of like you were, you know, I don't know when that happens to me, so I can just feel that kind of frustration sort of starting to build up until until I just I have to do something to to, to figure out how to how to make the semester work. Have you ever had a semester like that? I'm trying to think if I've ever had a semester not like that. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Are you it's, there yet this semester? <laughs> I'm I'm being I'm being a little overly dramatic. Um, you know, it's funny. I I have had those semesters where I um especially in the larger class mm-hmm. um the the a and p series that i teach down physiology series i teach in spring is our first semester a and p and so anytime you're teaching a first semester class and second semester you know some of the students you're going to have are ones who weren't successful you know in their first attempt right and um yeah i i remember about three years ago uh no it was your it was the year before COVID. it was 2019 um so four years ago now yeah, I was having one of those semesters specifically in that class, and I just felt like nothing I was doing was was getting traction. And um, yeah, and 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 I started letting the frustration get into you know my lectures, mm, and okay. uh, and I I I didn't have a very good poker face. Oh no! <laughs> and uh, and I and I never really got out of it. I, I'm sad to say I never really got out of it. And it was a it was probably the worst semester I've had in terms of that class. Yeah, and. Uh, and and I just made a decision. I said, you know what? I've got to, I've got to, I've got to not make it personal because yeah. sometimes it can feel personal when this yeah. when you feel like students are ignoring your advice and they're not doing the study habits you want. They're not, and they're not answering the questions which are based on the if slides. I've told you, you once. I've told you a hundred exactly. times. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was like, you know, it's not personal. It's they've got a lot going on. Yeah. You know. Yeah. When I was an undergraduate, I've often thought thought about that sort of like helping to carry them across the finish line. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I remember I had this one semester and I called it my, just get me through this two weeks Mm. semester. Mm. And that was my fervent prayer. I was like, Lord, just get me through this next two weeks and I'll be fine. And then I'd be done with that two weeks and the next two weeks were even worse. And it was that way the entire, you know, semester until I finished finals. And, uh, and 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 I felt like that in 2019. I was like, oh my God, I just got to get through these next two weeks. <laughs> and you felt that way, and you and you probably thought my students are feeling this way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because I I know they're, you know, I again, I can't assume my students are me, right? Right. I know, you know, I had struggles going through school. I know I'm sure you did, and I know my students do, but the struggles I had are going to be different than what a lot of my students face. Yeah. Yeah. Mine, and mine were always of my own making. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I may or may not have had a few of those. I'm not going to lie. Not going to yeah. lie. <laughs> so um, I, I'm, I'm curious. We're, 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 we're getting close to close to wrapping up, but I, I'm, I have uh, one final question for you. Yeah. That's what's the most important thing you want a new instructor to think about? I think the most important thing I want a new instructor to think about is how they can communicate to their students that their success is their priority. Mm-hmm. That, you know, their, their job is to help the student succeed. It's not just to stand up and, you know, be the information fire hose, right? I want them to be really invested 
and figuring out ways to make their students better students, because I think that's part of what we have to do. Um, Our students don't always come to us with really good study skills. They don't know how to actually prepare. And so I want new instructors to understand that that's going to be part of your job is helping your students develop those skills and, you know, own that, embrace that and make it part of your class. You know, I've, I've had so many colleagues who have done great things where they have, you know, built study skills into the assessment for the class. You know, they have students do concept maps or, you know, they have them do reading journals. Yeah. And it's about, you know, it, it's about giving them a way to have accountability, but also a way to allow that effort to play into their success, right? Because yeah. I think students... Students too often, you know, they look at a, at a book that they have to read for a class and they're like, eh, that's a waste of time. I'm not going to do it, right? And so it's hard to communicate the intangible benefit of reading the textbook because it's going to help you do better on the test, right? Right. But if I read that textbook and I write a paragraph about what I learned from what I read or what was confusing and what I'd like to learn more about or talk more about in class, and I'm going to get some points for that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You know? I mean, so you're talking about the, the the really teaching them the strategies and it's really it's, it ends up being critical thinking strategies and reflection, exactly. reflection. And that, that that's great. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Harold, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed talking with you and Same I hope here. That I'll see you at the retreat. I'm pretty sure I will. And uh, we can <laughs> chat then. <laughs> that sounds great, Mike. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Bye, everybody.